Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. The Hamilton Encampment Support Network calling on City Hall to stop clearing encampments. We'll hear from both sides of that story. We analyze the acquisition of firehouse subs by restaurant Brands International. Subway is in trouble again, this time for its tuna. The Queen's health is again under the microscope. And 43 is apparently when we stop caring about our age. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Important topic that we have to talk about, uh, not only in this segment, but in our next segment as well with City Councilor Jason Farr. Uh, the uh, Hamilton encampment issue, it's, it's not going away despite a... Uh, recent ruling by Justice Andrew Goodman, who ruled that the city can enforce its bylaw against tents in public spaces. That ruling came back on November 12th. We're still seeing those encampments in town. We're also seeing people in those encampments being evicted from those spaces. And, well, here we are. Added to the mix now is a group called Hamilton Encampment Support Network, and they've now held a couple of solidarity pickets, if you will. One was held yesterday. Another one was held last Friday at the gates of one of the city's public works yards, uh, stopping trucks from leaving the facility, preventing employees from, I guess, doing their day-to-day jobs, and demanding, more importantly, demanding an end to encampment teardowns in city parks. Why is the city of Hamilton not putting in resources, time, and energy that it's dedicating to encampment teardowns into finding permanent, sustainable, accessible, habitable, and affordable housing options? The Hamilton Encampment Support Network continues to call on City Hall to stop clearing these encampments. We have a couple of guests, Kubra Hagar and Vic Wojahowska joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, ladies. How are you? Good morning. Vic, I'm hoping I didn't butcher your last name. Oh, it's all right. That was close enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Kubra, maybe we'll start with you. Why take this action? Why these solidarity pickets to get your message across? Um, I don't think the um, pickets are necessarily just to get the message across or the main point of the the uh, picket was to get the message across. I think, you know, the city of Hamilton is making um, workers do their grunt work uh, to remove people violently from their encampments and tear down um, all their all their tents and throw away their belongings. And I think um, the pickets were, were you know, in, in an effort to, to stop that from happening um, and to give encampment residents time to actually think about um, what they could do as alternatives, because Hamilton isn't presenting um, any alternatives to these uh, encampment residents. You know, their their belongings are being thrown away, um, and and they're they're being asked to move, but they aren't giving any um, actual housing options. Nor are they being um, connected to any shelters. And we know that that's not the solution. But they aren't giving any housing options either, and are being told to just move further into the encampment. Uh, sorry, into the escarpment where people can see them less. Um, which I think is very shameful. Um, and these pickets are kind of, um, you know, in order to stop that from happening at the root of where um, it may happen every morning. And even though we know that that's not um, where the orders are coming from and, and the, the issue is greater than being at a specific um, facility, it is still um, a way in which we, we are able to, to kind of start to, to defend and camp residents in that in that manner because it, it's unacceptable the way that the city of Hamilton is choosing to proceed. Vic, why target these uh, public works yards and are more protests like this planned in the future? Well, first things first, we, just to make it clear, again, our gripe is not with workers directly, but we do want to empower workers to know that they can collectively refuse the violent work of encampment evictions. Um, 
again, it's it's city trucks, city garbage trucks that are showing up in droves at encampments and um, effectively giving them two hours to move um, without presenting viable alternatives. Uh, we have heard of people across encampments um, being told by police that they should move into the escarpment woods where they're not connected to any resources and it's much harder to survive. Um, even when folks are presented the options of shelter hotels, uh, and can, we've heard in Cameron residents describe shelter hotels like prison. They trigger relapses. You're physically not allowed to leave. It's a two-hour walk from services downtown. Um, and it's really isolating. And in terms of future actions, I mean, anything's on the table. Um, we're a creative group, and we're going to keep showing up in numbers for encampment residents, however that looks like, because we know that the housing crisis isn't going to be solved overnight, and the city of Hamilton is not putting in the work to provide safe and dignified housing options for individuals. The city of Hamilton um, and specific counselors, I mean, we have... We've talked a lot about Jason Farr. Um, they say that shelter space isn't an issue. We know that's not the case. You have shelter workers directly in shelters saying that there's no space, that they're refusing people every single night. You have encampment residents saying that they're not being offered space. You have police and social navigator police saying that there's no space and trying to source them. You have city outreach workers showing up at encampment evictions and saying that there's no space. So there's obviously a dissonance happening there. Um, and we don't even have data on shelter deaths, which are rising in Toronto. There, there are many reasons why people refuse shelters. They're not necessarily the safest option for individuals. Cooper, why is this uh, issue important to you? Do you have a connection to uh, a certain encampment or an, an individual in, in an encampment? I think as Hamiltonians, or just as residents of the city, or members of this community, or, or neighbors, honestly, people tend to, you, you know, there's there's this big um, idea of separation between um people who, who might live in what we would call like a, a traditional home um, versus our um, unhoused neighbors. And I think that disconnect to me doesn't actually exist. Um, these are members of our community. These are neighbors. These are people I care about deeply, people who care about me as well. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's important to, to, to note that and, and to, to talk about that because it, it isn't about um, helping an and other. It isn't about helping people who are separate from us. These are all community members. Um, and I think to grow as a community and to make the city better for its residents, it's not just about doing things or advocating for things that will directly benefit or profit you, but it's also about doing things um, that is going to make the community better as a whole. Um, and yes, with regards to personal experience, you know, family members, people close to me have experienced um, houselessness and um, directly experienced the, the um, repercussions of the housing crisis in the city of Hamilton and how violent and how difficult it is to live through the shelter system um, is also something that people tend to sweep under the rug and, and talk about as a solution to, 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 the, to, uh, to the crisis at the moment, but we know that that's not the case. Uh, we know that the shelter system should strive to be abolished if the, the purpose is to um, provide dignified and safe housing permanent um, and, and uh, accessible housing to members of the city of Hamilton, to members of this community, right? So it's not about um, whether or not this is an other situation or a situation where we're talking about people who are separate from us. These are all members of our community and residents um, in this city. All of, all, whether housed or unhoused, deserve to feel safe 
and deserve to, mm-hmm. to have somewhere to go at nighttime where when it's minus 5, 10, 15 degrees outside, this is a cold, cold country. And, and we, you know, housing is a human right. Uh, I'll have to interrupt there because we're out of time, but I really appreciate your time. Vic and Kubra, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is Kubra Hagar and Vic Wojciechowska, and I know I'm butchering it, from the Hamilton Encampment Support Network. On the other side of the break, we are going to chat with War 2 Counselor for the City of Hamilton, Jason Farr, and what the city is doing on this issue and uh, what they or how they feel about the ongoing protests. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Over the last week, since the failed injunction, We've seen a rapid escalation of teardowns with the idea of making homelessness disappear. Encampment residents are forced to disappear into the escarpment, away from their own communities where they're in a lot more danger than they were. That is another member of the Hamilton Encampment Support Network, which held a second solidarity picket yesterday outside the city's public works yard. Another one was held on Friday, and this demonstration or demonstrations uh, follow a court decision back on November 2nd that allows the city to resume enforcement of its bylaw that prohibits tenting in parks. We heard from a couple of members of the Hamilton Encampment Support Network. Now, the other side of the equation is uh, what the city of Hamilton is undertaking, and here to talk about the city's efforts in this regard is War 2 Councillor Jason Farr. Jason, good morning. Thanks for joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Hamilton. I'm sure these protests have caught your attention. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly, as I said, uh, on Friday, nothing wrong with a peaceful process. On Friday, out front, the Shadok Yard, they prevented the Christmas trees and the decorations going up in Dundas and uh, grass cutting and uh, some garbage collection from our, our folks working out of that yard. Unfortunately, that didn't occur Friday. I'm not sure. I haven't had an update on uh, yesterday's protest, but uh, there were no uh, encampments. Uh, uh, exercises on the work schedule Friday, regardless of that. Uh, peaceful protest is one thing, and uh, eventually, uh, you know, I mean, we're obviously uh, concerned uh, if this continues, uh, and we'll have to address it if it continues, if we're unable to get our, our paid employees out to do their, their day's business. Uh, uh, some options on addressing these protests? What can you do? Well, there's obviously a number of options, and that's from the enforcement side, and ultimately councillors will not dictate enforcement at any level, particularly with uh, the police. But uh, certainly uh, we, we have objectives. We have, uh, you know, a lot of work to do outside of encampment uh, and, and the roles that the parks and waste staff play in ter- terms of, uh, of uh, taking addressing the issue. And uh, we need them to get to that work. We can't have this uh, go on for too much longer. I, I, I can't give you details on how that would be assessed and ultimately addressed, but I can tell you that it would be. Regarding uh, the, the encampments, and there's still you know, many tents across uh, the city, what is the city's game plan? What's the timeline here? There is no timeline, and that's, um, you know, I caught the first part of the interview, and the reality is, you know, we can't be the only city that doesn't enforce this bylaw. And so since Justice Goodman, absolutely, we've... Uh, uh, been a little bit more proactive than the previous process. We are enforcing the bylaw. Again, Hamilton being the only city that was for some months since the August 9th resolution of council to repeal the uh, protocol that was in place allowing five tents for 14 days. It was a disaster. It wasn't working. It was being ignored in a lot of cases, particularly in downtown parks. And so council made, I think, a wise decision to do what every other city is doing. And for many months, what happened was encampments just continued to grow. 
when I hear um, some of the messaging, though, from the protesters, and, you know, God love them, uh, it's a democratic right to, to protest, and these young folks are bound and determined and steadfast on an on, on, on isolated focus, very much focused on maintaining tents and parks. But the reality is, you know, we have a city here that we need to manage, and we have laws in this city and every city. And the reality is our outreach is better than anybody in Canada. And the reality is that... You know, there are options. If you take a look uh, at some of the reports from Friday's protest, we, we, we mentioned over the course of a week we approached 40 encamped individuals. Twelve took us up, and when we approach as outreach uh, homelessness and housing uh, uh, professionals, we, we provide options. Of the 40, only 12 took up our offers. And so this is really a question of it's time, especially with the cold weather, to start taking these offers uh, that we're, we're consistently, we have always offered, even before this became an issue during the pandemic, during and for future, that's what we do, and it's time to take those offers. And the reality is those offers come every day with our outreach work, and so it's, it's kind of spun in a way that it's, it's a bit confusing for me. And the reality is in the numbers, uh, Rick, you know, we've housed directly from encampments about 80 individuals. We've gone from living rough, sleeping rough in the most inhumane and unsafe ways on city parks to housing, uh, directly from encampments to individuals and families uh, that we got into housing indirectly, but they were on, 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 um, on parks, et cetera, living rough. We've, we're, we're approaching 500. We're going to have 600 by the end of the year where we have individuals and families that we're getting to housing. We are doing that work. It's completely... Uh, not part of the conversation when you're talking to the other side of the equation, but that 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 is statistically accurate information I'm sharing with you, and so it is happening in a very very big way. And in terms of shelter space, the other uh, note that was being made that there's no shelter space in the large majority of cases there is. If you call Mission Services every day, Rick, and say, do you have any room? Mission Services for men, unsheltered men to shelter men will make room. They will always say we have uh, spots available, and if we don't, we will make spots available. And the majority of cases out there are single men. Let me jump in there, Jay, because we're against the clock and out of time, but I appreciate your time. Thanks for shining a light on this important topic. I appreciate We're going to continue to do the good work, and we're going to be like every other city, and, and unfortunately it means enforcing this bylaw prohibiting encampments in city parks. That is Jason Farr. Thanks, Jason. More to Councillor, City of Hamilton, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Big acquisition in the world of business uh, yesterday, Restaurant Brands International. This is the company that owns uh, Tim Hortons, Burger King, Popeyes, uh, Louisiana Chicken uh, franchise. Well, it has now bought Firehouse Subs for a grand total of $1 billion. Marvin Ryder is a professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Reimer, Mar- Good. Uh, Marvin. Good morning. I, I was combining your names. That's quite all right. <laughs> is, this, uh, is this being viewed as a big deal? No, uh, I hate to say that to you, no, um, in part because a billion dollars doesn't get you as much these days as it once did, uh, but it, you know, it's a significant deal certainly for Restaurant Brands International. Now, 
I don't think the average person listening to us has heard of Firehouse Subs. This is a company that was started in Florida in 1994, so it's approaching 30 years. Uh, why the name Firehouse Subs? Well, it was started by, you guessed it, a couple of firemen in their off period, and it's now expanded to 1,200 locations, primarily in the United States. There are 48 locations in Canada, all of them in Ontario, and believe it or not, uh, there are three in the greater Hamilton area, two in uh, Stony Creek, one on the mountain. There's also one in Burlington, one in Oakville. Uh, and again, as the name implies, Firehouse Subs, uh, many of the people who've chosen to uh, to get involved and open a franchise have been off-duty firemen. So a bit like the Tim Hortons story, started by a police officer, so police officers help patronize it, Firehouse Subs has been very popular within the fire community. And finally, one other quick note about it is that uh, about uh, 15 years ago, it established a charitable foundation uh, right after Hurricane Katrina <clears throat> to try to uh, support communities that have been devastated by natural disasters. So you've got a lovely uh, food product being offered, but you've also got this charitable foundation on the side. The whole thing is being purchased by cash, and I think for Restaurant Brands International, uh, this was a good-sized acquisition, meaning they can they can afford to buy it either through the cash they have on hand or with a little bit of debt. They didn't have to get a lot of debt or issue some equity or trade stock. So it was just a nice mouthful for them to add to their other collection of three brands. So RBI now has basically a coffee and donut shop, a burger place, a chicken place, and now a Subway sandwich place. Is this diversification in a nutshell? Yeah, I think that's the idea. Uh, the, the hope is that one can trade off the other. So just to give you a simple example, uh, with, with uh, Tim Hortons, their biggest problem is saturation in the Canadian market. There's over 4,500 locations in Canada. Where do you open the next one? I've often joked it'll come to a kitchen near you. They're sort of running out of spots. Now there, they'd like to take uh, Tim Hortons and really expand it in China. And they've uh, promoted, they've said out loud that they're planning to open 2,500 locations in China over the next decade. But as they're going to China, they can say, well, look, you know, I've, I'm offering more than just Tim Hortons. I've, I've got the Burger King, which is well-established, a well-known name around the world. Uh, not as well-known as Popeye's, but it's actually the, has been the fastest-growing segment of the organization. People seem to like Louisiana-style uh, fried chicken as opposed to Kentucky-style fried chicken. Uh, and now they've got this firehouse sub. So they can go into an area, and as they are trying to make one brand grow, they can make the others grow. Restaurant Brands said firehouse subs benefits from a strong family of franchisees who own and operate 97% of the brand's restaurants across 46 U.S. states. Canada and Puerto Rico. Right. Is that franchisee network important to a company like RBI? Well, you want yes. If you're going to acquire a chain, if you're going to acquire a chain, you really want to have a sense of who's running these locations and are they reputable people. As I say in the past, because it was started by a couple of firemen, they have preferred hiring or preferred giving franchises or selling franchises to other firemen. So these are people who are well-established in their community, that they are have a good, strong work ethic. They know what they're doing. In other words, you're buying a pretty sound family of franchise owners as opposed to maybe another franchise, and I don't want to name any names, but if you were to start kicking the tires there, you might say, ooh, I'm not sure those people are as, as devoted to the brand. I'm not sure I'm getting as good a deal. So again, for them, 
Uh, a bit like the Tim Hortons network is a strong network of franchisees, so is Firehouse Subs. We're chatting with Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University about uh, Restaurant Brands International's acquisition of Firehouse Subs for $1 billion. Now, it's interesting to note that this deal was announced as Subway is embroiled in yet another controversy, this time about what's in its tuna. Is there a coincidence here? I wouldn't call it a coincidence, but uh, what Restaurant Brands International is betting on is that people want an alternative. Now, I'm going to be quite candid with you, Rick, and say I'm not really a submarine sandwich kind of guy. I don't eat a lot of those kinds of things, so I I could care less. But um, Subway clearly has the top of mind for submarine sandwiches. You might remember a few years ago a brand by the name of Quiznos made quite a splash in that field, and their big hook was that they were serving hot sandwiches. So they would take your submarine sandwich and then toast it up for you so it's nice and warm and crunchy and those sort of things. And they did really well for a while, but you may have noticed the Quiznos brand has disappeared. What was the problem there? That franchise network. The people who got involved weren't the best people to help the company grow, and as fast as it grew one way, it shrank. So I think restaurant brands said we didn't want to get another brand within the chicken area. We didn't want to get another brand in the burger area. We didn't want to get another brand in coffee. What's an area that's growing? What has the potential for growth? And I think they're seeing the stumble by Subway, the stumble by by Quiznos, and then the strong background of Firehouse Subs are saying there's a chance here. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch to see how this business grows. Marvin, always appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. Glad to be with you this morning. That is Marvin Ryder, professor with the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Firehouse Subs, as Marvin mentioned, founded in Jacksonville, Florida, back in 1994 by a couple of brothers and former firefighters, Chris and Robin Sorensen. And since 2010, this is phenomenal, this brand has expanded, tripling its restaurant count to about 1,200 locations in Canada, the U.S., and Puerto Rico. So Firehouse Subs uh, appears to be on fire if you will. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, you've probably heard the story about Subway and uh, another lawsuit. I say another because this isn't the first controversy that has dogged Subway over the years, but a new lawsuit alleges that its tuna isn't quite 100% tuna, which uh, causes a bit of an issue if you're uh, you know, a vegetarian, you, you you don't eat meat because of diet or religious reasons. Uh, there are a lot of question marks here on what is happening with Subway. Now, again, this is a lawsuit. These are allegations. Nothing has been proven in court, uh, but uh, and we don't know what kind of, um, you know, damages that this lawsuit seeks. They're unspecified at the moment, but uh, Subway's being, um, you know, accused of, being fraudulent and violating some consumer protection laws. So here to chat about it is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor of food distribution and policy, the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and the food professor. And he joins us now. Dr. Charlebois, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Should we be surprised about hearing this kind of story? Well, <laughs> it's not the first time. No. Uh, we hear uh, we hear about... Uh, questionable practices at Subway. I've always been concerned about the franchise, to be honest. Uh, uh, its growth strategy was, was very, uh, well, I guess, unstrategic. Uh, it, uh, it grew, it became the, the largest chain in the world uh, only by empowering franchisees to open up other stores around uh, their neighborhood. And, uh, of course, they were asking for fees, 
that's about it. There was no studies. In many cases, there weren't uh, any market studies and things like that. So the focus was really much about growth. On the supply chain side, I, I've always wondered uh, about rigor and uh, how they're making sure that all of the all of the food that they serve is traceable and uh, and that food authenticity is is a key priority for for the franchise we've heard about uh, the marketplace story uh with chicken not being chicken mm-hmm. uh, it was soya and uh, of course uh, there were uh there were stories about the bread itself in some parts of the world their bread there's so much sugar in their bread and if you walked into the subway there's a distinctive smell because there's a lot of sugar in their bread and in some parts of the world like in Europe they consider their bread as cake can you imagine and uh, and now we're hearing uh, stories about about their tuna and i i think it's the second time we're hearing about tuna at subway so you mentioned a number of different things including food authenticity is in in and I guess the, their products being untraceable. When it comes to food regulations, do they not have to follow a specific pattern? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's food fraud. That's really what it is. Because if, as soon as you're serving something that is not uh, properly labeled, uh, it's it's food fraud. And so, in this case, uh, as you just mentioned, if you have if you have a dietary preferences. Uh, due to religious reasons or because you're allergic to something uh, or because you want to follow a specific diet, all of a sudden you're served something you don't want. And, uh, and that's, that's food fraud. And, and so there, you can feel that really Subway has put a lot of pressure on its supply chain, on its vendors, to get the best deal possible and, uh, and to make as much money as possible to serve their franchisees and at the end of the day, when you're starting to test uh, the authenticity of some of these products, you end up with major surprises. And, and that's why, like I've been hearing from franchisees myself uh, over the last several years, uh, and they've been concerned about some, some practices uh, at head office, whether it's in Canada, the U.S., or elsewhere. Dr. Shil- Sylvain Charlebois is our guest, professor of food distribution and policy and the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, known as the Food Professor, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Um, so this lawsuit had a marine biologist test 20 tuna samples taken from 20 Subway restaurants in Southern California. 19 samples had, quote, no detectable tuna DNA sequences, while all 20 contained detectable chicken DNA, 11 contained pork DNA, 7 had cattle DNA. Um, So we know from this marine biologist testing that it wasn't 100% tuna. Can we say it was unhealthy? Uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Um, Now, uh, when you find other uh, types of meat uh, in a product that is not labeled, Sometimes it's due to the fact that the equipment itself uh, in the processing plant is not properly uh, cleaned. Mm -hmm. That could be one reason, but if you're not actually finding tuna at all (laughs) in a piece of tuna, I mean, there's some major underlying reasons here that uh, or problems that that you need to to fix. Now, uh, some of your listeners may wonder, okay, these, these samples are from California. What about Canada? Well, I mean... 
I, I can say that most of the time when uh, Subway products were tested in Canada, uh, we found out that there were some uh, mislabeling practices going on as well. And so I suspect that if you go out and, and start testing in Canada, you may actually end up uh, with similar results. And that's, it, it goes to, uh, it points to the real problem at Subway is that I think their supply chain strategy is just very deficient compared to other other chains like, uh, I mean, McDonald's certainly, uh, the, the chain itself is very careful with, uh, with how, how they serve, what they serve, uh, because their, their reputation is at stake. Uh, at Subway, honestly, uh, it's really just about growth. And when you look at the history of the chain itself, the two founders have had some, some, uh, some um, criminal issues. I mean, you can see that there's lots of baggage <laughs> linked to the chain itself compared to other chains. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Dr. Charlebaugh, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. That is Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, known as the Food Professor. I should also mention that the complaint that is now in the uh, the courts um, said that the testing showed that Subway mislabeled its tuna products and duped consumers into paying premium prices. Uh, when you order a tuna sub, you're expecting tuna to be in that sub, not cattle (laughs) or pork or chicken that's a different kind of tuna you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml making news uh, consistently now is queen elizabeth ii missing out on the remembrance sunday service in london that uh, paid tribute to britain's war dead after she sprained her back and this isn't uh, the first health concern at least recently that the queen has been dealing with here to talk about it is patricia treble founder of right royalty and a royal contributor to mclean's patricia good morning thanks for joining us good morning rick the 95 year old queen has had a rough go of late what's going on well everything seemed to be going swimmingly um you know she'd spent the summer most of the, most of the summer in the and the early autumn at Balmoral in Scotland which she loves doing she likes she loves getting away from there and she often will go to go hiking um you know uh, and you know we're in the highlands of Scotland so hiking is you know is a bit of a challenge and obviously everything is accommodated to, to being 95 um, and she came back to uh, to Windsor Castle which where she's been based uh, since the pandemic and took undertook like a round of like in, a lot of engagement she was really visible and if you remember she she started wearing a cane started taking a cane with her or a walking stick as some people called it and then all of a sudden it seemed like she pushed it too far uh, and on October 20th, she canceled a two-day trip to Northern Ireland. Then it was revealed she was in hospital overnight for tests. Um, late October, they were said she's canceling everything ahead um, for two weeks because she wanted to go to Remembrance Sunday. Now, you, you've got to understand how important this is for her. I mean, she obviously has served during the war, um, and the remembrance of the war dead is incredibly important. She's only in 69 years missed it six times, four because she was on foreign tours and twice because she was pregnant. So big deal. And so she missed COP26. Now, she's been doing work from um, Windsor Castle, doing um, you know the video stuff, which she's actually taken to like a duck to water. She's really good. So she did um, you know, an, um, a speech for COP26 that everyone watched on video. 
But everyone assumed Remembrance Sunday would be the thing. And then this notice comes with less than an hour's warning that she sprained her back. Um, and you can understand. I mean, it's an hour's drive at least each way um, from Windsor into the heart of London. And then she has to stand on the balcony. Um, and if anyone's had a bad back, everyone knows that is just purgatory. Um, and I think it's simply a recognition, let's face it, she's 95. You know, things happen and things take longer. Um, it takes longer to get over everything. Um, and anyone who's had a parent or a grandparent knows that. What is uh, the worry um, uh, amongst the public? I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are really wringing their hands, fearing the worst. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, um, this is a woman who has made it plain that she is going to just keep working. Um, a, she likes it. Um, I mean, you can see, when you see her out and about, you can tell there's a smile on her face. She enjoys this. Um, you know, one doesn't do a job for 69 years if one doesn't actually like it. Um, you know, or certainly you can't hide it for 69 years, let me put it that way. Um, but she's also sworn an oath, and she is, a, she is a religious woman, and she swore an oath at her coronation, an oath to God to do this duty, to be monarch, to be head of state. And she takes that very seriously, but there is concern. I mean, you know, I mean, I remember the headlines, and there's headlines, amazing thing is headlines around the world. She is everyone's queen, uh, because she's been around for so long. So when we saw her with a cane, everyone was like, ooh, she's got a cane. When we saw her, you know, um, obviously looking frail, everyone started getting worried. And I think it's simply a recognition that she's going to have to take things a lot slower than she hoped for now that, you know, she's get, trying to get back to more public duties after, you know, being double-vaxxed. It's probably safe to say that the palace is going to accommodate that kind of slowdown, I would imagine, over the next few months? I think, I think the issue is going to be trying to keep her... Um, to keep her in check, maybe. <laughs> I, you know, I'm going to be honest. I mean, wh- who says no to the queen, right? Um, I mean, she, you know, she takes the advice of her advisors. But I mean, if she wants to go out, she's going to go out. I would expect. Would we see her before Christmas? I'm not so sure. Um, Christmas is a big deal. So she actually just went. She got permission during her her rest period. Um, to go to uh, her estate in, at Sandringham, which is in Norfolk, in the in the north of, of England, um, to prep for Christmas. And this is something, this is this thing that um, she and her late husband did every year. They always went in October to get ready because they love having all the family together at Christmas, as much of the family as possible. Um, and it's a big thing. And she got permission to go there, um, obviously privately. So I would assume the next big event we'll probably see her at will be Christmas, will be Christmas service. And even then, you know, everything's downscaled. She used to walk with the family. Now she takes a car to church. Um, you know, the family walks. Um, everything, you know, protect the queen. Put her, put her in cotton if we need to. That's fine. Certainly going to be a different Christmas, I would imagine, this year with Harry overseas, the Queen's health woes. Uh, we only got about 30 seconds here. The, I mean, you talk about massive shoes to fill. This might be the biggest shoes of all time to fill. Oh, this is, this is yes. I mean, it's, I call, everyone calls it the inevitable. I mean, we know what is coming down the line. Um, and this is a woman, think about it. Uh, last time I did the numbers, 90% of Canadians have known no other head of state than the Queen of Canada. So it is going to be it is going to be a landmark an earthquake for the for the monarchy. Uh-huh. No doubt about it. Patricia, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today.
You're welcome, Rick. Patricia Treble, founder of Right Royalty and a royal contributor to McLean's. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. A recent survey of 2,000 people in the U.S. aged 65 and older by one poll on behalf of ClearMatch Medicare found 72% of people feel younger than they are, with half saying they feel younger than 50 years of age. And 84% said they've embraced aging. Also, the average person stops caring what others think of their age at age 43. Interesting stuff. Let's bring in Michael Nyson. He's the executive director of the National Institute on Aging and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Michael, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming on. Interesting numbers. What do you make of them? Well, you know what? It actually doesn't surprise me. I've uh, been in the researching field of aging for a long time now, and I think this result is, is somewhat interesting from a public survey point of view, but the evidence points in the direction that older people are actually doing really, really well when it comes to subjective measures, right? So our society has a tendency to you know, pathologize old age. Everyone's afraid of being old. But when we look at the data, and this survey validates it, is uh, people tend to do well when they get older. So uh, is it safe to say we're aging more gracefully than ever before? Well, it's hard to compare, but, uh, you know, just to introduce a couple of uh, other points here, like you, there were researchers who did some uh, research on happiness, for example, and we actually find that uh, people are the happiest when they're in their 20s, and then there's a dip right around that time when people start having kids, careers are forming, but then it starts rising at, you know, roughly the same uh, age as that poll indicates, somewhere in your mid-40s, people start getting happier again, and it keeps rising through your 60s and 70s, so we know that you could certainly get happier as you age, and in some ways, you might be sort of bottoming out on happiness when you're in your sort of 30s. Uh, and then on the other hand, we did some research showing that older people have a lot more social capital than younger people. Social capital, of course, those connections we have to our institutions, voting to our community. So, you know, all signs indicate that as we age, we actually, you know, come to terms with our aging, uh, as that poll indicates. Uh, we tend to become happier, uh, better adjusted, and have more social connections than people that are younger. And I think that, you know, cast a, a different sort of look at aging than most people have in their own minds. One of the officials involved in this study said, quote, baby boomers are reinventing what it means to age. They're not letting their age interfere with their quality of life because the best years of their lives are still ahead of them. So does that ring true for many, if not most? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, when you think about the life course of an average individual, you know, you go through schooling and, you know, the grind to finding your career, finding a partner, having children, setting up a home. These are really hard life challenges that all of us go through. But, you know, for most people, and there's always exceptions, but for most people, you start settling down in your 40s. You know, you've, you have a home, your family is hopefully alive and healthy, and, and your career is progressing well. And, and I think it's a really good time for people to sort of sit back and look and say, look, maybe things are tough now. I'm in my 30s. Housing is hard to find. Careers are hard to sort of really locate. But, you know, there's a bright future ahead. And, you know, on top of all of this, people are living happier and healthier lives uh, and longer lives than we were 50 years ago, right? Uh, Canadians are now routinely making it into our 90s. Uh, centenarians are actually the fastest growing part of our population if you look at the actual numbers. So there's a lot of life ahead of us for, for most people, and it's really good news that uh, you know, there's a pretty good chance we'll all be happier and better adjusted as we get older. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Michael Nyson, Executive Director, National Institute on Aging. We're chatting about a a recent survey of 2,000 people aged 65 and older, and 72% say they feel younger than they are, and half say they feel younger than 50, which is probably a pretty good feeling. There are, however, I would imagine, uh, still challenges that a lot of older people are facing. It's not all, you know, lollipops and rainbows. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the big ones are health and finances, right? If you don't have good health, I think for at any age, uh, life is going to be different. You're going to be less happy. Uh, but we are finding that people are aging in better health. And then the other one is finances, right? Uh, if you're facing retirement and you're financially insecure, uh, certainly you might have uh, less happiness and more worries. Uh, but if we can combine sort of health and finances, which is going to be true for most people, uh, really what it shows is an upward trajectory. And we're seeing more and more people in their 60s and 70s enjoying life in a way that they probably hadn't expected and that maybe their parents and grandparents weren't able to because, you know, life, uh, life expectancy wasn't what it was, uh, wasn't uh, what it is right now. So I think there's a lot of hope, but I think, you know, hopefully these kinds of studies reveal to younger people that uh, their best days are ahead. Uh, aging is not a problem. It's something we could look forward to. And, and as a society and as individuals do triumphantly rather than in fear. One of the interesting tidbits is the average person stops caring what others think of their age at age 43. That's I don't know how that they came to that number, but it's an interesting number. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, you know, if they're doing the surveys, people will report when they started feeling that way. I'm uh, 40 years old, and I can corroborate that, uh, <laughs> right? And, and I think a lot of it is, is, again, you know, when you're younger, you're jostling for space in this world. Where am I going to end up in the pecking order of an organization? A lot of concerns that uh, really hit us in our 20s and 30s. And for some people, they might think things aren't going to get better. But I think surveys like this show that, uh, indeed, you know, the struggle can be worth it. And uh, our golden years might, in fact, be the best years of our lives. It's a good point. Michael, really appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. That again, Michael Nyson from the National Institute on Aging. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.